Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest is Sir Jeremy Greenstock. Sir Jeremy is the chairman of the strategic advisory company Gatehouse Advisory Partners and chair of Lambert Energy Advisory. He served as the UK ambassador to the UN from 1998 to 2003 and has extensive experience working in the Middle East. Our conversation today, COVID-19, the oil price crash, and what the MENA region could look like post-pandemic. So, Jeremy, uh, thank you very much for joining Arab Digest podcast. Thank you. I'm very happy to, to do this for the first time with Arab Digest, whose reports I use every day and, and admire. That's very kind of you. We'll leap right into a, a rather large question, I admit. Can I ask you, first of all, your thoughts uh, on the impact of COVID-19 in the MENA region? Well, I think it's been quite substantial in three areas. One, health, obviously, and I'll come back to that. Uh, Secondly, on the economics of the region and the way, striking way, it's affected the oil market uh, and oil prices, which we will have to come back to. And thirdly, in the areas of conflict where another great burden has been placed on the appalling suffering of people in Syria and Yemen and Libya and elsewhere. Uh, And the pandemic threatens to make life in refugee camps and in the poorer population even worse than it already is. So those are the three areas that I think we need to look at uh, when we're assessing the full effect of the pandemic on, on the region. I think everywhere, Bill, the pandemic is tending to accelerate trends that were already happening. There will be some specific uh, COVID-19 effects, obviously, on travel, air travel, uh, on uh, working methods. Uh, I think we need to look at the whole business of migration in and out of the Middle East. But on the whole, the political effects are going to be an intensification of things that were already happening. And one of the thoughts I always have about the Middle East is that it's an area where the standards of governance have not been as high as they should have been in recent decades, perhaps not for a century or two. Uh, And that's something I think we should discuss in terms of the further effect of the pandemic, because what a crisis like this does is to seek out the weaknesses in any particular organism uh, and make them struggle to deal with those weaknesses. So that's something perhaps we should talk about in this uh, discussion. Well, yes, I think that's a very interesting point. Uh, Indeed, the virus seeks out weaknesses and uh, not just in the body, but in the body politic, as you're as you're suggesting. And of course, there is this double whammy effect, isn't there, with this oil price, the crash in oil prices. And, And again, I would ask you, what is that impact having the impact together with COVID-19 of the oil price crash? Well, the effect on oil prices, although the greatest effect is going to be short term rather than long term, I think there will be a recovery in the oil market at some point, but the timing of that is unpredictable, is to make 
real cash flow problems for the governments of the Middle East that depend on oil revenues. And some of them have more reserves than others. If you look at the contrast, say, between Saudi Arabia on the one hand and Iraq on the other, Iraq has got no reserves to speak of to offer financial support to their population during the pandemic, during the downsizing of the economy and the loss of a wide number of jobs. Obviously, it's of concern in Saudi Arabia and uh, the Gulf countries as well, but they probably, uh, as I sometimes put it, are more able to hold their breath underwater for longer when there's a problem than some other countries which de depend in the short term on oil revenues. And Iraq, I think, is Iraq and Iran, and since we're not just talking about the Arab world, uh, maybe the North African countries uh, are in a different league from Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries. So judging how governments deal with this immediate cash flow problem is going to be a big test. There is some thinking that the price of oil has now stabilized. I think it's sitting at around $30 a barrel. Uh, some analysts suggesting it'll go up to $50 a barrel. Do you think by the end of 2020, do you think that'll be enough to uh, stabilize things and, and take some of the pressure off some of these more vulnerable economies? No, not entirely. I think Saudi Arabia has always reckoned that its break-even price for the large expenditures it has on its budget is closer to $80 a barrel. Um, certainly in the longer term, they want prices to try and stay in the 60 to $80 a barrel bracket. Um, $30 a barrel will persist for a while, but then demand will come back and supply will be reduced by the current travails in the upstream, particularly in US shale uh, and perhaps also in Russia, where they are much less able to switch on and off with their oil wells than Aramco is in Saudi Arabia. There will be some long-term effects on supply, and then prices could come back quite high, uh, never perhaps again to 100, but in the, in the upper decades of dollars per barrel. Um, but the timing of that bill will be totally unpredictable. I would say it will be well into 2021 before we see recovery above uh, $60 a barrel. And in the meantime, great pressure on some of these vulnerable uh, economies if it takes that long to recover. Yes, because, you know, the Middle East economies have um, structural weaknesses. They're, some of them, their populations depend on subsidies. Oil and other energy prices are way below world prices in most Arab countries. The subsidies of, of food and bread, etc., in, for instance, Egypt, cost a lot of money to the budget. So just as in the Western uh, industrialized nations, there are going to be very considerable debt and financial overhangs, I think the same is going to happen in the Middle East. Now, you mentioned Saudi Arabia. What are the challenges now facing the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and, and King Salman? Well, oil prices are the first challenge because uh, the Crown Prince has set his cap at a large program of reform, the Vision 2030 program. Um, everybody's looking at the possibility of building something like the new uh, urban uh, 
complex at Neom in the, in the northeast. Um, those sorts of things will have to be considered. The Aramco takeover of, of the Sabic industrial complex is going to have to be rethought at current uh, budgetary levels. But more than that, the subsidies to the population, the public employment uh, costs, the support for younger members of the population who are unemployed, all of those are going to be more difficult under the current um, tra travails than they were pre-COVID. At the same time, the Crown Prince has got other worries on his on his desk. The war in Yemen is extremely expensive and going nowhere good. He's got to try and get out from that, which might involve a political downside. He uh, seems to be regarded as so far handling the COVID problem reasonably well by Saudi public opinion. But the problems are piling up for Saudi Arabia, which has lost its cautious approach to policy making under the current uh, uh, king and needs to think through carefully how to pace its reform program. Uh, and that's going to need some changes of approach. Yes, he uh, had very, very ambitious targets, didn't he? Mohammed bin Salman, uh, pre-COVID-19, uh, pre this crash of the oil prices, he had talked about weaning Saudi Arabia off oil by this year, actually. Uh, none of these things have been achieved. Is there a danger that he set uh, his expectations so high that failing to reach them will have serious political implications for him? Well, I think that was going to happen anyway um, with what's happening in the oil markets. Obviously, the pandemic has made these things worse. But the upside, the silver lining of the pandemic is that you can blame it. Uh, and your populations know that they need a coherent and consistent government to get out of the pandemic crisis. So they may be rather more for forgiving under the pandemic uh, than otherwise. So there are pluses and minuses there. And we'll have to see how cleverly the Saudi government plays it. But what the Crown Prince has done in concentrating powers in his own and in the king's hands is to put the whole burden of responsibility on his own shoulders. So he's got to live with that and be quite cunning in the way that he plays his politics over the next two or three years. That will be an interesting uh, remit to watch, won't it, how he does play his hand? Fascinating. And there are other things going on in Israel-Palestine and in Syria and elsewhere in the Arab world with the Arab countries not playing a blinder at the moment in terms of Arab League cohesion or in covering their full governance responsibilities as well as they should. So they're all under pressure. It's been argued that uh, authoritarian leaders uh, will use COVID-19 not only to further tighten their grip, but also, also to expand their influence in the region. Would that description fit Mohammed bin Zayed, the Abu Dhabi crown prince and the de facto ruler of the United Arab Emirates? Well, I've been following uh, what's happening in the UAE quite carefully. Uh, I, I lived there once in the early 70s as a diplomat. My son was born there. So I'm very fond of the UAE. And I think that the de facto uh, rule of Mohammed bin uh, Zayed is, is, um, is quite a powerful one. 
I'm not sure that he needs to increase his grip anymore. It's already quite strong. And they've got to be careful, these rulers, to use the pandemic artificially to create pressures on their population which detract from their legitimacy. I think the, the Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia in particular, the monarchies in the Arab world, do have a natural legitimacy in the eyes of their population, which some of the republics lack, and I include the, the sheikhdoms in that description. But they've got to be careful as the younger generation comes through, and the Arab world is a, is a very young population, thinking differently, uh, judging their lives through technological advancements and job opportunities differently, that legitimacy has got to be maintained and they will be spotted if they use this pandemic artificially to repress more uh, determinedly. So I would advise quite a lot of caution in that area and I would have thought that MBZ was quite savvy in that respect and won't turn on the taps too obviously. In regards to foreign policy adventures, really, uh, in places like Libya, uh, in, in, in Yemen, do you think that he will, however, use COVID-19 to pursue these uh, really quite aggressive uh, uh, policies? Well, I, I've been watching for some time how he's begun to distance himself from the Saudi approach on Yemen. I think he's quite clear in his own mind that the UAE should get out of Yemen uh, and, and to some extent he's begun to do that. So that's one example of where he's prepared to take a, a differentiated approach. I, I think um, that the financial and political calculations come together and the effect of this crisis has been for every government to focus more carefully on their internal situation. It's always been their first priority. That's true in Iran for all its foreign adventures. It's true certainly in Egypt. It's true in Saudi Arabia. It's true in Israel even. They all focus on their internal situation. So I see MBZ as staying very carefully uh, focused on how his own population responds and in making sure that his immediate neighbourly relations are kept uh, as positive as possible. We've got the, the gutter problem obviously next door and the UAE have been very fierce on that. And I think there's no let up coming on the Saudi UAE uh, down on Gata. But Gata seems to be surviving pretty well with its more self-sufficient and independent stance. It's got its uh, lines open to Iran. If, under pressures, governments become perhaps more resilient and more innovative. Uh, those that are capable of that, those that are not capable of some innovation uh, and subtlety, and maybe we should talk about Egypt in that respect, uh, are going to suffer more. Indeed, and, and, and we, will, we will move on to Egypt. But I wanted to ask you about these countries that had seen significant street protests, uh, Iraq, Lebanon and, and Algeria, that, which has been quieted by the COVID-19. Uh, do you see uh, in those countries that the street protests will uh, re-emerge in force? And if so, what sort of impact could that have on these quite vulnerable regimes? Well, I think that the pandemic has frozen a certain amount of political activity. I always used to say of the 
foreign interventions in the, in the Middle East, not least Iraq, that they never mend the problem. They just freeze the problem uh, and sit there for a bit. And when they go away, the problems come back from where they started 10 or 15 years previously. I think that's going to be true of the pandemic. Uh, there is a lot of discontent in the younger generation. Uh, I come back to the point about governance. They've not been governed well. Perhaps the Middle East bill has the largest gap of any region I'm familiar with between the real potential, the human capital potential of the population and the actuality. And that the young notice, uh, and that's where the Arab Spring came from, after all, from Tunisia onwards. So I think these things will come back and maybe in two or three years time, in some respects, we'll forget that the pandemic ever happened once we have a vaccine for it. And some of these pressures will certainly come back because of that low quality of governance in certain places. Well, let us now move to Egypt, uh, where the pandemic is, I think, causing much more concern than the government is willing to admit. What sort of impact is this having on the economy and indeed on, on President Sisi? Well, uh, I think Egypt is in some trouble with the pandemic. It's not being transparent about what is actually happening. It is not cracking down effectively enough to make sure that the pandemic uh, spread rate comes down. So I think the health consequences for Egypt, which is a very crowded population, of course, in, in the main conurbations, is, is still to come. I think the military rule is not being particularly sophisticated in its governance of this and is losing respect from the population by the way it's handling it. So President Sisi and the senior uh, chiefs of staff have got to be very careful of how they handle this because their credibility is likely to lessen. They're under financial and other economic problems. Tourism obviously has completely gone away. Flights in and out of the country have gone. Uh, migrant workers are returning home with no jobs to come to. So unemployment will go up. This is beginning to turn into a perfect storm for Egypt. And while I think there are probably some quite good recovery factors that will come into play if this is a short-term pandemic, if this continues, I think the, the government is going to be in, under some pressure in Cairo. Would you see the return to the sort of protests we saw in, in 2011? Well, I think if unemployment rises and there is a potential for a build-up of street protests down the line, but probably not before the pandemic uh, is in a recovery phase. Well, finally then, Sir Jeremy, the MENA region, once the pandemic has passed, will it be back to business as usual with the same economic and political structures? Or, or should we be anticipating some fundamental, even radical changes? Well, I don't think the... The, the real reasons, the, the motivations for radical change uh, have been made different by the pandemic from what was there already. As I said earlier, I think it will come back to the pressures that were there before. But there will be some changes. I think, I think what we need to keep our eye on in Arab Digest interpretation of what's going on is what was happening before the pandemic and what that pandemic 
uh, is going to accelerate by way of trends that were already there. Yes, as you suggested, it highlights some of the structural and governance weaknesses, doesn't it? Well, this um, has been, you know, one of my worries about the Middle East for a long time. The Arab Spring was an indicative process of hope that perhaps there might be a change towards different forms of government. But the Arab world, in my view, and maybe this applies to Iran as well and and to Turkey, perhaps less so to Israel, which is a, a formed democracy. But the Middle East has not been an area where compromise and coalition has worked very ably. The regimes tend to work in their own interests and to hang on to power in their own interests. And the looking after the whole population comes second to retaining a grip on power. And what the Arab Spring got wrong in removing three regimes in Egypt, Tunisia and and Libya was a failure to replace those those regimes with something better. And some people would say that the the Sisi era in Egypt is no improvement on the Mubarak era, perhaps um, in the other direction. Uh, And the causes of justice and proper legislation and looking after with welfare programs, the less well off uh, and the defeat of of terrorism in certain regions, it hasn't improved with the aftermath of the Arab Spring. So there are old problems to be addressed here. And I'm not seeing very visibly the ingredients for a better approach to some of those old problems. So the pandemic will have sought out and made more visible the weaknesses in these regimes, but not stimulated improvements. So there's a lot of work to do for the Arab world and the governments themselves must think about how they can bring their populations along, particularly the younger generation, with more consultation and more approaches to compromise and more stimulation of the private sector and foreign director investment. Uh, than before. We haven't, for instance, talked much about Algeria on this talk, but they are beginning to think about how to stimulate FDI in a way which wasn't happening before. That's sensible thinking. Algeria has its own political problems and the domination of the military in particular on the politics of the country, uh, which is a a common theme in the Middle East, uh, as in Egypt and probably in Libya. But Algeria is beginning to think through how it opens up a bit and I hope that begins to spread to, to, uh, to more countries in North Africa and indeed the whole region. So, Jeremy, thank you very much. Thank you. Good to talk, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Sir Jeremy Greenstock. Sir Jeremy is a former UK ambassador to the UN and chairman of the strategic advisory company Gatehouse Advisory Partners. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.